Welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development Speaker Series podcast. This week, we are joined by Andrew Stern, CEO of the Global Development Incubator. I'm sitting down with Andrew after his appearance at the Harvard Kennedy School on October 15th, 2021. First, uh, Andrew, I'd like to give our listeners some context on the organization you lead, the Global Development Incubator. Can you briefly tell the audience about GDI and how your work impacts economic development around the world? Sure, thank you. So the Global Development Incubator aims to turn good ideas into great solutions. So we launch new ventures that do good in the world and that can be in a variety of fields. We work across health or climate. We're generally agnostic on the issues we take on but we're looking for areas where we can make a big, big leap in society. So that is, is usually one of our biggest criteria for whether we, we get involved in an effort. One way to think about what we do is we bring ideas, funders and leaders together and then provide them with the support they need over 24 to 36 months to take what is usually an idea, maybe on paper, maybe in a report, maybe in their head and turn it into a full organization that can stand on its own. Over the last seven to eight years, we've launched about 40 different efforts, 20 of which are now standalone nonprofit organizations. They range from large global efforts like the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery to more focused efforts like Precision Agriculture for Development, which is trying to deliver agricultural information through digital technologies to farmers in East Africa and South Asia. Okay, great. I mean, those are, that's a clear, you know, very diverse set of topics that you work on. What are the some of the main characteristics that GDI looks for in, in the organizations that you partner with? Yeah. We look for three or four things in what we take on. So first and foremost is the potential for local or global impact. Uh, we try to get a sense of, is this an area that is ripe for change? Uh, both in terms of immediate need and, and the results we could deliver, but also in terms of broader systemic shifts that could happen in a field. Um, second, we like to get a good sense of the leaders and the partners involved in the effort and whether they are the type of entrepreneurs who can carry it forward. I'd say our, one of our big learnings over the last few years is it's not just about technical competence, it's about a level of humility, self-awareness, ability to partner, ability to lead. And we're trying to get better at finding those type of entrepreneurs. A third area is around the financial sustainability of the effort. Is this, while, while we do take on efforts that we like to think are on the frontier of development and there aren't always the existing funding streams, is this an effort that could ultimately attract funding or build up its own sustainable revenue model that could carry the work forward? And then lastly, we look internally at ourselves. given our own capabilities and capacities. Do we have the right expertise? Do we have the right network, um, the right inclination to work with this team to bring it to the next level? It makes, it makes a lot of sense. Could you perhaps talk about one of the success stories that GDI has been involved in that you're most proud of or just see as particularly instructive for development practitioners? Sure. One of the efforts we're involved in right now is called uh, Aceli Africa. 
And it has the, the big ambition of building a sustainable agricultural finance market in East Africa. And it does that by not working with one organization, but working with 20 to 30 global banks, local banks, non-banking finance institutions to provide the right incentives and the right support for them to provide new loans that they otherwise wouldn't have done so. That could be loans that are small, loans that are in new crops or a challenging geography. We also provide incentives for loans that uh, address climate change, um, that are gender balanced, that support youth as well. To me, it's one of, uh, it's a good example of what GDI does because it is delivering very clear results. It underwrites almost a loan a day already in the first few months that it's been in existence. But more broadly, it is trying to build a commercial market and ultimately draw in the local governments to provide this type of support as we do in the US or in South Korea or Germany to organizations that support smallholder farmers. GDI got involved in this about four years ago um, through another effort we were supporting called the Council on Smallholder Agricultural Finance. We helped with the entrepreneur behind it, Brian Milder, sort of conceive of it, design it, build out the model. And then over the last few years, we've done everything from building his website to hiring his team, to negotiating with different funders, to setting in place the right financial agreement, to getting the right legal support to help the effort get up and standing to where it is today. So it's only in the beginning of its you know, journey and only in the beginning of what we hope will be some broader change in building the agricultural finance market, but we have a lot of confidence in where it's heading. Okay, I mean, as I hear you talking about results being results driven, it reminds me of one of the discussion points in the live event, which was results driven systems change. Uh, systems change is obviously increasingly salient in the social innovation and development spaces. Can you talk a bit about you know what it is and why it's a useful lens for thinking about development practice? We use this term results-driven systems change. We find it's a nice balance between, on one hand, efforts just focused on systems change, which might be around policy or um, government shifts, and those efforts that are simply about scaling a single nonprofit. In effect, we're trying to marry the two efforts. And, and behind that is on one side, we believe you do need some level of results. You need to hit certain proof points. You need to demonstrate that something works. You need to build the evidence base. You ultimately need to show that it can be done at some level of scale. And you need to build a constituency behind it. And we think all of those are ingredients to then try broader systems change, whether that's trying to bring in the private sector, whether it's trying to get a government to adopt a program, whether it's trying to get that program replicated, where we see some of the bigger systemic shifts. So we focus on both of those. We, we assess the efforts we take on. Uh, we try to measure progress on both of those. Uh, the former is obviously a lot easier. We can measure very tangible results against a, a plan. And then the harder part is, is the qualitative assessment. Are we changing how people are acting and behaving? Are we changing the incentives? Are we changing funding flows that really drive the broader systems change? So that's, that's been our lens in terms of the work we take forward, results-driven systems change. 
That's interesting. Obviously, in the development space, it can be very, one of the biggest challenges is to identify the impact that you're having. And you've talked about being very results-driven, number of loans underwritten per day, financial sustainability could be another result that you aim for, but also you talked about systemic impact. So, you know, what have been some of your experience in thinking about impact, measuring it, you know, being excited about the impact that you're having with your partners? So the first thing is it's hard. And then I'd say the second thing, you know, for all the technical work, I'd just pick up on something you'd say that you're excited about. There is something about, you know, a collection of people looking at something and, and being excited about it. You don't want to be naive that, you know, you're excited for no good reason. But a lot of what we do is trying to interrogate some level of the results. And again, the quantitative we find relatively easy. One's underwritten. Um, number of youth reached with mental health services. I think one way we've tried to work with our partners to think about the bigger systems change is first to map out what that would look like and then try to unpack it, untangle it and say, well, what is our theory of how to shift that system? So if you take something like our effort, Cities Rise, which is trying to unlock mental health services for youth in cities around the world, there are some very clear metrics there. But in terms of whether a youth feels supported, resilient, part of a community, whether the government is responsive to those needs, whether the education system is, those are much bigger shifts. So we try to focus on those that we can start to see some progress, education, system. We've helped set up in India a variety of programs that are trying to provide uh, hope and resilience for youth in the education system. And we've got some measures uh, around that. They, they are somewhat quantitative, but we've also been working to see how the education system itself is shifting, how they are changing their funding, how they are equipping their teachers to think and assess children differently. So, you know, I don't think we have a perfect answer on that. It's certainly very adapted to each of the sectors we're in, um, but it always starts with a, a conversation and it starts with people, a group of people looking at the results together. Okay. Um, I mean, I think transitioning a little bit to obviously COVID-19 has been a massively challenging phenomenon for all sorts of organizations. How has it impacted your work? COVID has shifted our, our focus you know, a couple ways. I'd say at a portfolio level, we have tried to focus on efforts that we think could play a role in a post-pandemic world. Um, and then at the same time, it has shifted every single one of our initiatives to be more mindful or more adapted to these changing circumstances. So in the first area around the portfolio, We've taken on a, a new effort called Leapfrog to Value, which is trying to help emerging uh, economies and health systems in South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, Ghana, and India not go on the same path as the US and other Western countries, which is a volume-based system driven by inputs, um, an expensive system without as good outcomes as other systems, and one that ultimately is driven by volume to one where we think we can deliver better results, which is around value. 
And that's focusing on the social determinants of health, housing, job creation, nutrition. It's focused on promotion of healthy behaviors and mental health as well. And it's focused on prevention as much as it is focused on medical and treatment. And the big shift for us, we think in, in the health systems of the future is that it has to have all these components of value, but it also has to be human-centered. I think we've seen with vaccine hesitancy, vaccine skepticism, that our health system, our medical community is very detached from the people we are trying to work with. And that needs to change. And it needs to change on both sides, but it needs to start with the provider side as well. So that's one area or an example of a big sort of post-COVID or COVID work we're doing. On the other side, Every one of our initiatives, like every everything else in this world, whether kids going to school or companies, how they're working with remote workers, every one of our initiatives have had to shift. We do a lot of um, migrant work, whether it's refugees or people affected by modern slavery. Um, all of these have been affected in different ways because supply chains have been disrupted. Uh, Cross-border travel has been disrupted. Um, so in each of them, we are trying to find, you know, focus again on the populations that are affected and go back and really understand where they are and what their needs are now that things have shifted from an economic point of view or from a migratory point of view. But like everything, we're trying to adapt with it and, and trying to make sure our work and our programs really fit what is becoming, you know, sort of the, the new normal now. Great. I mean, I, I'm, I'm particularly heartened to hear you talk about doing a lot of work with migration, having worked with the South African Department of Home Affairs, got quite familiar with uh, international migration issues, particularly, which is quite relevant in, in Africa. You know, migrants are particularly vulnerable populations of people, can be very fraught political and social issues. Could you maybe talk a bit more about some of the work that you're doing in migration? Because that's, that's such a challenging area. Yeah. Say so two things, one at a more general level and then a specific example. At, at the general level, we've been working on four or five efforts around what we sort of call people on the move. So labor migrants, uh, people affected by modern slavery, refugees, internally displaced people, internal migrants. And after a couple of years of working on them, we finally looked across and said, wait a second, these are very fragmented, very siloed definitions. And in many cases, people could be a refugee at one point in their migration. They could be trafficked in another. They could yeah. become an economic migrant. And we are doing a disservice to their needs if we are not thinking about this more comprehensively. So we have just started a big effort, people on the move trying to reframe what are very siloed and fragmented definitions to see if there are new policy implications, if there are new partnership opportunities, if there's new financing and ways to think about their finance, uh, what we can deliver to them. And even on the institutions, you know, there is a IOM in the UN and a UNHCR, and I'm not sure how well they coordinate their work. There are different programs at state and USAID in the US government. I'm not sure how well they coordinate their programs. So that's one big push. 
An example of how we are trying to work on migration, uh, one example is an effort we've launched uh, together with a group in India called John Sahas, and the collective effort is called the Migrant Resilience Collaborative. There are 140 million internal migrants in India that are often pursuing work in different parts of the country. It, uh, in construction, there's about 40 million, and there are often very challenging circumstances from a housing, from a social service, from a childcare, from the economic situation many of them are in. And together with John Sahas, this effort is trying to do two things. One is build a social protection safety net for them that they're rightly owed from the Indian government. And the Indian government has a policy in place that's never actually been fully enacted and there's funding in place. So can we create a model and a mechanism to distribute that money to people in need? And then second, going beyond the immediate needs are can we build a more ethical recruiting industry in construction? That instead of taking day laborers and jobbers, there's a layer of ethical contractors that can be certified in some way that can provide better working conditions, better wage structures. And we're trying to work with the construction industry there. And the goal is to reach around 10 million people, which is significant. A country like India uh, needs to go further, but we think it's a start to try to provide some, some better lives for, for these people. I mean, I think it's particularly interesting the number of stakeholders you've just talked about there, international uh, bodies, national governments, private actors, you know, the boundaries between private, public and social sectors have become far less distinct from ways of working to funding models, among others. So what are some of the interesting new ways of approaching development work that you've seen that blend these kind of different spheres in productive ways? Yeah, so you know, one of the areas that, so we're always trying to bring different stakeholders together. And you know, I mentioned mental health or migration or smallholder farmers, all of those are public-private markets, like, like almost any market, right? So if we're doing smallholder farmer finance and we are focused on working with banks, we are also working with the government because they, they're the ones who are going to set the playing field, set the incentives through the banks and, and otherwise. So part of that is just, you know, being aware of these sort of cross-sectoral points. I'd say another place, though, where it gets very focused is around finance. And one of the efforts uh, we helped launch a few years ago called Convergence is the first platform for blended finance transactions. And blended finance is where you're trying to bring public and private capital together with some level of returns and meeting the needs of both the public sector and the private sector. As you can imagine, that is not always easy. Very different interests, very different objectives, a uh, fair amount of negotiation. But our hope is once you get a few of these structures in place, they can be replicated. And as we all know, the types of problems we're trying to solve right now take significant amounts of capital and, and more than public capital, more than philanthropic capital could ever be brought to bear. So without drawing in private capital in productive ways that is not naive about the own interests of private capital and the return expectations, but in a way that can help move them further into areas they may not have explored otherwise. 
that to us is one of sort of the big, big opportunities right now to bring all these sectors together and working in different ways. So Andrew, very often when we talk about development, we focus on the challenges, the infrastructure financing gap, some of these big social issues that you've alluded to, health, education, uh, digital divide. What are some of the opportunities and emerging success stories that you've seen either in your work or just in the landscape that you kind of would like to highlight, highlight or see more attention be given to? Yeah, I'd pick one area that we, from a GDI perspective, have been a little late to the game, but have now been working on pretty significantly, and that is around climate change. And I think, you know, they're rightly so is a very uh, tempered narrative right now about what's going on and whether we're responding fast enough. And I think there's an interesting um, shifts going on here. And um, on one level, there is um, new technologies and R&D and innovation, and that's important. But getting those to scale is, is obviously the big game here. And I'd say in the last few months, we have come across whether it is trying to take um, technologies around biochar production, which is a, a stable form of carbon, um, to uh, plant biology and significant increases in um, plant production that obviously has food security implications, but also has the potential for significant climate change play. And seeing people not just develop those technologies, but now there are more conducive policies and incentives. So seeing that change, seeing um, a greater focus from organizations and institutions around the world, and then seeing, I, I think also on the commercial side, whether it's investment capital, starting to look at ideas here and ideas at scale, or venture capital, earlier stage, starting to support some of these efforts. So to me, the climate area is one that I, I think you're starting to see attention, policy, financing, R&D, innovation, all the pieces coming together. Whether we can get there fast enough, obviously a bigger question. But one of the efforts we're really excited about that we've been helping to incubate over the last few years is an effort called Emergent, which is a global trading platform for forest-backed carbon credits. And the idea behind that is, could we create a platform that use sovereign-backed carbon credits with forests that are minimum size of the state of Vermont. So working in states in Brazil and elsewhere to bring them on and showing significant carbon changes in, in, in the forest structure there. So to me, that's one of these big ideas, right? And it started moving along and we now have a billion dollar guarantee to get the market trading uh, from the US, the UK and the Norwegian governments. And we have commitments from five or six Fortune 100 companies, Amazon, Unilever, and others to be the first buyers of those credits. So, you know, a big idea, and it, it sort of reveals how corporations, how finance, how policy, all of this is starting to come together. So it's one area where I, I feel energized, you know, and, and cautiously optimistic. Well, that's, I think that's a great, uh, I think that's a great area to highlight given the importance of climate change. And as we go into uh, 
the, the, the big conference in the coming weeks. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I guess, you know, as, an, as you're a Kennedy School alum, I would be remiss not to ask, um, you know, how did your HKS experience contribute to the work you've done in development? And, and perhaps what have been some of the things that you learned maybe after you left school that, that, grads, that HKS grad students and, and in other institutions should kind of think about? I think while I was in school at the Kennedy School, I spent most of my time focused on technical work, trying to understand more just pragmatic, practical, you know, how do you set up a, a public management? How do you think about um, analyzing the public good? And then also go, trying to go deep on international development and understanding frameworks and concepts and ideas there. And I found all of that useful after I've graduated. But candidly, the, the classes I probably didn't focus enough on, on advocacy, policy, campaigning, um, those are the ones that I, I think ended up being more relevant to the work, more relevant to this idea of bringing different stakeholders along, thinking about bigger shifts in society. So for me, those are, those are ones that I had to look back a little at the Kennedy School and also round out a bit more with some of my colleagues once I started working. But I wish I had focused more on it while I was in school. One of the debates that we have uh, as we talk about development in and outside of the classroom is, you know, how do we make development less of a kind of permanent industry, but, you know, some an industry that ends because we've been successful. Um, you know, how do you how do you think about that, and and what makes you optimistic that, you know, in this kind of next period, the next ten to twenty years, we can really kind of have impact at scale in ways that perhaps international development has not been able to in the past. Yeah. You know, it, it's a big effort we've tried to take on now at GDI. We have been putting it under this, how do you localize development? And for us, that ultimately means how do you shift the power dynamics? How do you give voice ownership, decision-making, community owner, owning a policy and a program? And unfortunately, I think the proxy to that is how do you shift the funding flows? So a big focus for us is how do you take, which is a lot of rhetoric right now from government agencies, from uh, philanthropies, and, and make that practical. Make it so there is actually funding moving to local organizations and local leaders in a way that they can build up not just their organization, but also more broadly the field in a community. If, if you're only funding international NGOs, if you're only funding sort of large corporations, you are never going to have that local community ownership. So I'm confident there's going to be some movement. I feel like there, there seems to be a new energy here than there was 10 years ago. I do think it's going to require some level of um, maybe some enlightenment on the behalf of some of the donors and some practical um, types of work on the ground. But we are starting to see some really interesting bright spots of um, philanthropies and government agencies shifting some of their funding. And I, I think when that starts to happen, 
you do start changing this north-south narrative, north-south structure around global development. And, you know, I, I still think we want to be careful and not fetishize everything having to be local. You know, in the business world, there's multinational corporations. There's obviously a critique of this, but they do deliver a significant amount of expertise, ideas, and products around the world and try to tailor those to the local community. And there is probably some answer in the middle there. I think we're pretty far from the middle, so we obviously have to move in that direction. Um, but I feel I, I feel like there's a new energy around that. And yeah, the people um, who we work with around the world in any community are smart, talented, energetic people, and they should be supported with the funding and the trust of, of others. So I'm confident that we'll get there. Okay. And then just a last follow-up, you mentioned this, you know, some of the donors and funders you'd like to see evolve in a particular way. Can you kind of give us just a, a, an example of, of kind of what you were referring to? We've seen some funders who've done a couple things to really shift how they fund. And one of the ways is actually in some ways breaking up their, their foundations. So one example is uh, Omidyar Network. They have taken um, their Omidyar India, what used to be an office, used to be under the governance of an organization in, in California that used to be, um, while having some level of independence, still part of a, a sort of top-down structure, and they've separated it. And it now has its own board, its own leadership, its own priorities. And I think the work they're doing is, is really innovative. It, it, it's much closer to the ground. It's not supporting the usual sort of 10 or 20 nonprofits or companies in India. It's, it's finding ways to find, support more grassroots organizations. So to me, that's one example. Um, it's one bright spot. I'm not sure there's a lot of them, but I, I think it shows a pathway of what could be done. You can find more information about Andrew's work at the Global Development Incubator at globaldevincubator.org. Thanks again to Andrew for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's research and upcoming events at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.